Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I am a film critic and writer. And today I'm going to be talking to George Stevens Jr. George is a legendary figure in Hollywood. He has straddled the world of Hollywood and politics, I would say. He's a writer, director, playwright, and now he's written his memoir, My Place in the Sun. Among his many achievements is the founding of the AFI, the American Film Institute, which launched the careers of such names as David Lynch, Terence Malick, and Paul Schrader, amongst many others. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe, leave a review on Apple uh, Podcasts, if if that's how you're listening to it, or Spotify, if you can rate it for us, that would be wonderful. Uh, the numbers are going up. The numbers are going uh, up in a way which is extremely gratifying. But the reason is it isn't ego. I don't want the numbers to go up just because it pleases my sordid soul. It's also because these conversations, uh, because of the guests, I, I I just want people to know that they're out there as a resource just because of the guests. Just absolutely, you know, these are, are fascinating people and, they, and the more people that hear them, the better. You can follow me if you really want, and this is my sorted soul, at Dr. John T. D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Right. 
I just want to say I feel in very good company. Your your interviews are very interesting and happy to be with you. Oh, thank thank you thank you so much. Um, I mean, in fact, when I was reading your your book, I was kind of thinking, oh my god, how do I talk to the man who has talked to all the presidents from Kennedy? to obama you know all the way through how how could i possibly uh you know think of questions interesting enough to to to, to put to you and well that um yes and I, I i guess there are a couple of exceptions there i guess only jerry ford i never spoke with but and and nixon very briefly <laughs> simply <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, it's I've had a you know my life has been an interesting opportunity. I've been in two different worlds that have um, that interlock in certain ways, and with uh, and and as I wrote the book, I just realized how many how fortunate I'd been to um, be in the company of significant people, and in most of them intelligent and humanistic the book reads like almost like a wonderful novel that you just have there's so many so such, such a epic life in many ways i mean starting starting with your with your childhood and of course your your father it must have been quite quite a joy to to have the opportunity to go back and revisit that part of your life it, it's 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 very comforting to kind of do a, a kind of review and summing up and you discover things and you remember things things memories certain memories become more important and significant and, and of course you also had the opportunity to sort of go back and have a look at your at your sort of grandparents and and, and that legacy yeah. did, was that stuff you already knew or was that some of that did you sort of discover in the process of writing i, I knew the broad strokes but we never talked a great deal about it. No, I'd met my my grandparents and they were just my grandparents. And I kind of knew they had a theatrical background and, uh, and never really explored it. My mother kept from my father's mother all of these papers from the family, which, you know, clippings and, you know, the opening paragraph of the film, my grandfather at age 24 walking out of his theater in Oakland to, to go back to San Francisco for the night and gets mugged and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know and I'm reading the story from the San Francisco whatever the paper was San Francisco call I believe so that that w w was very helpful the, the fact as well that you are from this sort of family of, of sort of show business of actors mm. and and uh, you know but uh, but I mean obviously the the most famous that that we sort of know know of the of, of the group is, is got to is got to be your father, yes, uh, and his um, the relationship that you portray is 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 really moving. It's really it's a really mm. beautiful relationship. Yeah, I, I was blessed, you know, and I, but also with a wonderful mother. But uh, to have a quote famous or accomplished father, uh, which can you know for many people in Hollywood. You know, there are the stories of, of children of prominent directors and stars having difficult lives. And and I had a wonderful relationship with my father. How do you think you avoided that? How do you think, uh, you know, your family managed to remain to some degree grounded? I think it was just their quality. And my father was just a, in a not the kind of prototype of the domineering director 
but he was just a wonderful, gentle father that also, you know, the strongest of directors on the set, you know, but uh, with a, just a kind of a different style. And, uh, and we developed common interests. And, and this was also considering the fact that he was away at war for three years and that he, he, he kept all the letters we sent him and my mother kept the letters he sent and they're all in the Motion Picture Academy. And to be able to look back on these exchanges uh, was, uh, again, eye-opening to me. Did, was there anything specific that you learned in, in looking back over them that you, uh, that, that you sort of, that popped out? Just the kind of uh, having become a father myself, kind of fatherly wisdom, you know, how, mm. how he, his attitude toward me, his sense of fun, uh, in, you know, an occasional stimulation <laughs> to uh, to improve, but always with a deft touch. And and when did you sort of start to sort of become conscious of his of his profession and the and the sort of world he moved in? Well, I I, I knew he, he, he was a movie. I was embarrassed in my I think my the fifth or sixth grade to, when I was starting school. And everyone was asked what your father does. And, and I said, well, my father's a director. And the teacher said, what do you mean? And I didn't know what I meant. <laughs> I just, that was what I was told he did. And then as I became a teenager, I became more conscious of it and spent some occasional time on the studio, uh, at the studio with him. And then it, in my later teens, I, I became very involved with it. Yeah, I mean, that, that sense of what Orson Welles called, you know, the, the biggest train set a boy can have, you yeah. know, that, you, must, you must have sort of had a, had a feeling for that because you were there as a boy. Uh, I, I was, and that I, 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 I probably took it more for granted than Orson because Orson came in at 24 and it was his to play with. But... Uh, uh, <clears throat> And I was not at all kind of certain I was going to go in the direction of my father's career. I, as I say in the book, my uh, the year I graduated from high school, I didn't have a summer job. And dad said, uh, well, well, why don't you work with me? And he gave me two assignments. One was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, parts one and two, this classic novel. Uh, and put it in notebooks, all every character, every scene, because he was about to start work on A Place in the Sun based on Dreiser's American Tragedy. And the other was <clears throat> to read the books that came over from Paramount mm -hmm. and the scripts. And you know, there were a lot of kind of treacly love story, you know, the novel of the summer that were not you know, fascinating to a 17 year old on hot summer days. <clears throat> but one day a small book came and I read it in the afternoon and <clears throat> I went to see my father that night and he was in bed, he was reading. And I walked in with this book and I said, dad, this is really a, a, a good story. I said, uh, I think you ought to read it. And he said, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself walking around his bed, trying to reconstruct what I remembered of the story of Shane, Jack Schaefer's novel, and make the story interesting to him. Well, of course, <clears throat> Shane became my next summer's job, <laughs> working on, on the location. Uh, but, you know, <clears throat> as I, I remembered that incident in my life, but when I started to write about it, 
I realized that he was just giving me an opportunity to find, he was just giving me an opportunity to find out whether I had any aptitude or interest for his world. And, you know, it was a very interesting, thoughtful way to do it. And he never encouraged me. I, I was bound to be a sports writer and he thought that was great. But gradually I, I came into the family, family profession. Family business, yeah, but, but I mean, wow, that investment paid off. You know, getting you to do the to 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 pick a book, you could you couldn't have done better. I got to tell you another story that I I became more important to me as I look back on it. I always remembered having gone to the Academy Awards. I think it was 1951 with my father, and he was nominated for uh, a place in the Sun. Hmm. And I remember, he, he, my mother. And his actress mother were, were with us. He was driving the car. They were in the backseat. And I sat next to him during the awards. And Joseph L. Mankiewicz, head of the Directors Guild, and read the, came out and read the nominations for Best Director. It was John Huston, African Queen, William Wyler, The Desperate Hours, Vincent Minnelli, An American in Paris, Elia Kazan, A Streetcar Named Desire, and George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. And Mankiewicz, <laughs> a good year, no? So I was, yeah, was going to say that's a strong year, isn't it? <laughs> and, and Mankiewicz read the um, envelope and read and George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. We were driving home, and the Oscar was on the seat. And we, I was in the front seat with my father, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. And for whatever reason, he looked over at me, and he said... You know, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. <laughs> you so know, already... I mean, I think that, he, that he had a sense of perspective and he also had a, this feeling of the test of time. He knew what mattered. He was not so keen on making the, the most fashionable film of the year. He wanted to make, you know, something that he thought had lasting value. Now, of course, I must have been 17 or 18. He did not realize he was talking to the future founder of the American Film Institute. <laughs> but he was giving me an idea that became so much the core of the American Film Institute's uh, nature, you know, the test of time, that what mattered were the films that last and it was important to preserve them and to respect and recognize the people who made the films that stood the test of time. And to underline another aspect of that early part of your book is the uh, is you have a sort of, it, it kind of runs like a thread through the book, uh, a, a, a fascination with uh, Miss Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> uh, that, that he's again pretty enviable for a teenager to be uh... yes i mean when uh i was at occidental college not a terribly well-known liberal arts college until until it became known that barack obama went there much later than i uh and i went over to visit the set of a place in the sun and dad was there working with monty clift and elizabeth taylor and I watched them do a scene, and, uh, and 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 he introduced me to Elizabeth, and who was we we were the same age. Um, I think she was seventeen, just about to be eighteen. And uh, a little later, she comes over and says, uh, "Do you want to go for lunch?" And, and the next thing I know, I'm walking through the studio streets with Elizabeth, uh, 
and into the dining room in her wake and to sit down and have, uh, uh, I do remember it was hamburgers and chocolate milkshakes. <laughs> I, I was definitely going to ask what you, what you, what you ate as well. <laughs> and a little, again, that I know that a, a, a friendship that would last through the years uh, was started at, uh, sort of started with those milkshakes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My God, that must have been, you know, I'm surprised you 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 managed to eat. I would have been so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you were you were just used to you were used to having people around the house. You were used to people in the you know going to parties and having you know parties in the house. Um, but not so not so much. I mean, we lived in Toluca Lake, not in right. Beverly Hills. And, you know, I was conscious of my father's work, but they didn't bring it home that much. But yet I did, you know, had did meet prominent people and prominent people lived in our neighborhood. Uh, the a family named Crosby lived down the street, <laughs> Bing and his five sons. Um, but there were also very normal people in our, our neighborhood. So that, in a way, gives you a good preparation for sort of being in that world because it just means you're not as awed as, well, as I say, right. someone like me would be, you know. Yes, yeah, someone asked me um, in the interview that I'm doing for my book, uh, uh, Leonard Malton, whom you know or have heard, and his daughter is on, does the, his interviews with him now. And she asked me, what, what, what was the first star that really gave you that feeling of, you know, of, I don't know, you know, and excitement. And, and I stopped and I thought, and, and, I, and I couldn't think of one, you know, because they, I was impressed with them or interested to meet them, but it was not that. And I saw she was disappointed. And then a couple of minutes later, I came back and I said, I, I, I realized who it was when I, that where I had that feeling, and she said, "Who?" And when I first met met him, and and I said, "John Fitzgerald Kennedy." Um, meeting him was the way she felt about meeting movie stars. You know, when I got to Washington, and within two weeks, I had this uh, situation. I was invited to a party. At, by, by, uh, at our Sergeant Shriver. Sergeant Shriver founded the Peace Corps for President Kennedy. He was married to President Kennedy's sister Eunice. And I was invited to this black tie party. I was 19, 29 years old, new in Washington. And it was all of, you know, the fascinating people in Washington. And right. after dinner, they passed around cocktails on trays. And I, yeah. And, and, and after dinner, uh, the waiters in those days, they passed around trays with with drinks. And I had a, 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 a an after dinner scotch and soda. And they had a the Shrivers had a round entryway to their house and people were <clears throat> gathered there. And I looked over and the front door seemed to blow open and through the door walked and it's winter and through the door walked John Kennedy with no coat and black tie, followed by Lyndon Johnson. They'd been at a, at a dinner for the Prince of Saudi Arabia or something. And, you know, there was the first time I'd seen a president in person. And he walked through this room, this circular room, and I was sort of in the, in the 
back of two rows or circles. And he walked around and just to see him, to be four feet from him, it was so impressive in that there was a black and white era and here was this man in color. And, and so strangely, uh, that was my sort of moment, not meeting a movie star, but meeting somebody uh, of political significance that had this lasting memory for me. You start to then move between the worlds of, like you have one foot in the political camp and one foot in Hollywood, and you sort of combine those two roles. Yes. Yes. Uh, how how was that transition for you? Well, it was it was a kind of a dramatic transition in retrospect uh, that I had now uh, been I had been directing Alfred Hitchcock presents and Peter Gunn and television series, and I was uh, still just about to turn thirty. Um, and worked with my father and I'd become his uh, associate producer and directed all the location scenes for the diary of Anne Frank. And yeah, I was pretty much going in that direction. So to make the decision to uh, give that up and go to Washington was a big decision. I would, you know, it was the unknown, but it, it was perhaps the most interesting decision I made in my life. Uh, to take on the unknown. And it turned out to be the most exciting time to be in government, everyone said. I mean, the new frontier. And Edward R. Murrow, the famed broadcaster, um, uh, had gone to Washington to head USIA. So I was working with this remarkable man, working for this remarkable man and for President Kennedy. And uh, I, I enjoyed that opportunity to serve the country at USIA. We were making films to tell America's story abroad. Uh, and I met a whole new cadre of interesting and fascinating and purposeful people. Was there ever a moment where you you sort of thought about what might have been in terms of, I know I know you came back later to direct films as well, but was mm -hmm. there ever a moment where you thought, oh, I could have... Uh, I could have sort of had a career as a director. I, I was conscious of it, but I just thought that I, I would not want to give up what I had discovered um, in this, uh, you know, world of public service and public life. And I had not, because I soon started the American Film Institute five years later, and that re-engaged me with Hollywood. What was the genesis of the American Film Institute, if you could describe that a little bit? Yes, uh, the, the United States never had funding for the arts. President Kennedy spoke of the need for that, the greatest artist, my father was on it as well. And they knew what to do about uh, painting and poetry and dance, but they didn't know what to do about film. Uh, and they turned to me because I was in the government. I had this experience. I was working with young filmmakers, making these 300 documentaries a year. And so I suggested an American Film Institute and it evolved and uh, they decided to make it happen and they asked me to run it.
that must have been uh, a huge challenge, but at the same time, so exciting. Well, that's at, at a time where I really weighed whether I should go back, you know, because I was going into the very much the unknown and uh, and it was a huge challenge and it was uh, it turned out to be more challenging than I anticipated because soon thereafter Nixon was elected and decided to go a different direction in the arts and we had to really struggle to get the funding we needed uh, but we did and made it work and you know it's an institution now that's lived for 50 years and uh, and uh, you know we're very you know if, if, as you know the conservatory that we started in in the first three years or the first year it included Terrence Malick, Paul Schrader, Caleb Deschanel, uh, Tom Rickman. The next year, David Lynch, and it really became a bridge between learning filmmaking and the profession, and it and it prospers to this day. Uh, and really, it's and today it's it's half of its uh, participants are female. Uh, many from abroad. It's it's an institution we're very proud of. That those first years as well, when you were just finding your feet. I mean, I've been involved in education, and it's often like those first years. You kind of think, okay, we're not going to really achieve anything because we won't work out what we're doing for a few years. But you had so many, um, you know, amazing people. Well, you know, we made a choice. Uh, that because there were there were film schools <clears throat> NYU Columbia UCLA USC uh, where people had gotten some familiarity with the tools of the trade, uh, but we decided that our choice in selecting, which were only eighteen people in that first year, that we were not interested in what they knew about the mechanics of filmmaking, but what kind of people they are and what kind of stories they might have to tell. And so I think we made some very good choices that set us off on a promising path. How hands-on were you in those early years then? Were you sort of, uh, you were interviewing people uh, to recruit them and to, and, and to give them fellowships and you were running the day-to-day -day business of the conservatory as well as the AFI? Yeah, I, I moved with, with my young children and wife to Los Angeles for two years to, to get the, uh, we called it the Center for Advanced Film Studies, then changed its name to the AFI Conservatory, but to get that started. <clears throat> and what, what were your impressions of people like Schrader, Malik, Lynch, when you, you first met them? They must have been, must have been a fairly mixed bag of, of sort of young men. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, uh, Terry Malik became a great friend and uh, and uh, I later pr produced the Thin Red Line uh, with him. Um, and Paul Schrader was very antagonistic. Uh, he was, uh, you know, fascinated with Japanese cinema, rebellious, and uh, that's, that, those are not bad qualities. And David Lynch was this charming kid from Philadelphia. Um, just bright, open, uh, and you had no idea that the complicated ideas that would come through in his films existed in this uh, 
happy and very personable young man. Was there a sort of collegiate atmosphere? Were they sort of, you know, did they mix a, 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 at all or, or were they oh, yes. sort of doing it, it, No, they, they, were, they were all together. This, they, we were given this mansion called Greystone in, in Beverly Hills. And everybody would came there every day. David Lynch lived in the stables of this mansion for two years, producing Eraserhead. And that's just that alone. If if nothing else had happened, that alone would have been a contribution to American cinema. Yes, and and Mel Brooks was saw Eraserhead, which for your readers is a very uh, how would you describe it? You're a it's surreal, nightmarish. Um... Exactly. And and Mel Brooks saw it. And God, this guy must have talent. And he was making uh, The Elephant Man and wanted to meet David Lynch for a director. So he was waiting for this weird guy who made. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This surrealistic film... And he says, and in walks Charles Lindbergh in a leather jacket. (laughs) (laughs) His normality is another form of subversion, perhaps. I think so. I think so. (laughs) Wonderful man, David Lynch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you go on with the AFI to to honour and to start sort of promoting the idea of a legacy of American film. And and your first sort of honoree is is kind of ends up not being the because you want Cary Grant, but he doesn't do television. Well, yes, but the Cary Grant idea was simply when I was desperate because of the, in the Nixon era, we, our funding had been cut off, and I was offered by the government or the National Endowment for the Arts a five hundred thousand dollar matching grant, and I was already raising all the money I could find. So where am I? And matching grant, Cary Grant. So I got an idea of doing an event honoring Cary Grant at the Kennedy Center just to, you know, to raise money. Later, about three years later, um, I had developed the idea of the the AFI Life Achievement Award, which would be given not for the popular film of this year, but for an individual whose work has stood the test of time. And uh, so our, and that, and that our first honoree was John Ford. And, uh, and again, it was the idea to really respect creators of film for their lifetime achievement. And 
um, and it continues to this day. But in the, I wrote and produced the first 25 of them. And, you know, we just had the riches of, you know, and it was John Ford, James Cagney, Cary Grant, I mean, uh, uh, Orson Welles, uh, then, you know, Betty Davis, William Wyler, John Houston, Lillian Gish, Jimmy Stewart, Capra, you know, it was a candy store, you know, of great people to honor. And, and they were at uh, late stages of their career, which kind of gave uh, extra resonance to the honoring of them. And Sidney Poitier um, was a memorable uh, occasion in that respect. I mean, I was talking earlier about saying, oh, how, how can I talk to the man who's talked to all the presidents? But when I think of the Hollywood royal, royalty that you have, uh, you've known intimately or you've known on this basis, Orson Welles, for instance, is one of my all-time heroes. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what was he like in, I mean, I was going to say, what was he like in real life? But was, was there a real life with Orson Welles? Yes, indeed. And Orson was also magisterial in real life. And uh, I used to see him at Ma Maison, a restaurant in Hollywood where he would had his own table and, and, you know, and say hello from time to time. But then we honored him. And, and he always, he remembered my father. He, my father was not that much, maybe five years, 10 years older than Orson. But when Orson came to RKO to find that electric train set that every boy wanted. Um, he, he, he said to me, he said, your father was a, had become a important director to then. And he, then, and he, he was very generous to me. Um, and, and we did the life achievement award. And when I was making the film uh, that I wrote and directed called George Stevens, a filmmaker's journey, uh, a feature length film about my father, uh, uh, shortly after he died, I got a phone call and it was that the unmistakable voice of Orson. And he, and he uh, reminded me of how nice my father had been to him in those days. And he said, if you need any help, if you need a narrator, I'm certainly there at your service. Well, here was the arguably the best narrator. Richard Burton had not yet come along. He was, he was the unrivaled best narrator. Uh, that I was working with a friend who insisted that I should narrate this film. And my friend was right, because what made the film personal and successful was that I was off camera telling the story. So I had to reject Orson's very generous offer. But uh, uh, when I presented him the Life Achievement Award, I remember saying uh, that the last line was, a great man reminds us of no others. What a, what a wonderful, yeah, what a wonderful line. A great yeah. man reminds us of, of no others. They're, they're so individual and, and, and all of those names that you gave earlier, you know, James Cagney and Frank Capra. Uh, I mean, it, it feels a little bit, you know, it, it feels like that enshrined a sort of golden age of Hollywood. Uh, I, I think it did, yes. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, and and, act, and it turned out to be wonderful to be able to write about all these people uh, in, in this book because I kind of had these memories and I had the scripts and I, I had a lot of material to work with and to 
bring them to life in a new way in various chapters uh, kind of, you know, inspired me that, that this book might prove very interesting to readers. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the other thing is uh, you, you have a, a really unique angle. So you do see the humane side, the humanity of these people in the, you know, yeah, Carrie is a little bit, there's a little bit of the diva there. And, you know, Orson is a little bit, you know, he wants his money. He wants to raise money to make another film. So that's, that's in the forefront of his mind. Right. And Jimmy Cagney, when we had, had, uh, dinner before he received his life achievement award um he was just and his wife billy and uh, he was just so charming a small dinner and then he talked to me briefly about the show that was about to happen and he said uh you know he said well i'm gonna need a get of asia and i said a get of asia and he kind of did a little step he says yeah he said that's the step we've had billions do when we go off the stage so people will remember us. You, you, you know, you just have these wonderful things. And I title the last chapter of my book, Get of Asia, <laughs> out of respect for Jimmy Cagney. Uh, when I came to say, I've got to write a last chapter here. And I thought back to, to Jimmy. Yeah, that's a brilliant sort of... Uh... It's going back to the old theatre world of your of your family of, of sort of like it's it's important to make a good entrance, but it's also really important to make a good exit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you you know you you came to the later part of your career and you end up uh, producing films and and directing a film and, and uh, you get involved with the Thin Red Line, which feels like you're you're coming full circle as well to some degree. Yeah, I, I, a frustration. I had four years in the government at the USIA under President Kennedy and then partly under Johnson with Ed Murrow. Then I, it was 12 years to get the AFI started. I thought it would be much briefer than that. Mm. And while I was at AFI, I kind of comforted myself by starting the Life Achievement Award, which I was writing and producing those shows every year, which kept my creative hand in but basically I had stepped away from filmmaking and so that was uh, in 1980 I went back to, to to do that and I was able to do many things that uh, were important to me and uh, you know and to work with uh, Cindy Poitier and Jack Lemon um, these happened to be television miniseries uh, but uh, they were themes that were very important to me. And and that and, and having that creativity, as you say, I mean, it also means that you're sort of going into the 80s and 90s. You're, you're you know, again, directly involved in Hollywood in a way which is uh, which is more similar to how your father was working. Yeah. And it, I, I started the, the Kennedy Center Honors and produced it for 37 years which became the most, I think, respected kind of variety show in the United States. It's not seen overseas. So uh, your, many of your audience may not know it, uh, but it was constantly being awarded the Emmy for the outstanding uh, show of that sort. And, uh, and working with all the great artists 
from theater and ballet and again this wonderful you know life uh, for some of us maybe everyone depends on the associations you have and again for me now to be working with Leonard Bernstein and Isaac Stern and Agnes DeMille and Jesse Norman and you know all of uh, the great Jerome Robbins you know it just added such a dimension to my life you know you you, you are I know interested in writing with your uh, excellent podcast um, and I was thinking about it I mean I I wrote I, I, I you know, wrote separate sequel, the, the film with Sidney Poitier, co-wrote, um, and I wrote or co-wrote all of the special that I did. But it also reminded me that writing, I realized how important writing was to my life. You had to write the American Film Institute, you know, mm. and, and it's writing as persuasion, writing as f- formulating things, you know, writing to persuade a studio to make a film, writing to make the National Endowment give you more money. And I just realized that um, uh, how, how central writing is to my life and to many people's lives, not just for the things on, that you're credited with on the screen. And then uh, late in life, uh, uh, I uh, decided to write a play um, and I'd never written a play and soon it was on Broadway, you know, so just the, it's so fundamental to making your way in the world. And I've encouraged my children and now my grandchildren, you know, to be able to write, not, not the ability to write a good letter. Mm. So valuable uh, in so many aspects of your life. So I really encourage writing. Yeah, it's that ability to put language out there and sort of sort of get a grip of it, get a control control of it. That is that is fascinating. It also reminds me of sort of like you as a, a teenager sort of reading through all these novels as well to, to, to find to find a film in them. And then and then, you know, later in life, you're there reinventing yourself. As a, as a playwright but in the end it's just, it's about language and being able to see through language to something else to something that may be visual or film or maybe on stage as a performance right and it's 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 it's, it's storytelling you know, mm. even if you're trying to persuade the national endowment for the arts to give you two million dollars you have to tell them a story Yes, a really good one. <laughs> and 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 if you're in trouble with the with the law, you want to write a good letter to the judge, a good story to make your case. <laughs> Absolutely. Or, Absolutely. Or fortunately, I haven't had to do a great deal of that. <laughs> the latter. That, that, that was my that was my next question. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, when you so when you finally sort of came to. Um, sit down and write your memoir, uh, which obviously is a sort of, w- w- had you already written stuff in preparation? Was the stuff that you'd been been using, you know, uh, through the years? Or was this like, right, I'm going to start from scratch and, and go all the way through? I had, um, I had made notes. Mm. And around 2000, a wonderful writer friend you may know of, Tim Willicks, a novelist, um, and who became a friend, an English 
Friedman, um, I kind of exchanging letters and I said, what am I going to do with the rest of my life kind of thing? And, um, and he wrote back this eloquent letter about he thought I had lived a life that would be interesting to others. And he quoted all sorts of wonderful books. And, um, and, 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 and at that time, I then started making a bunch of no notes. And uh, so I had a, a, a lot to go on. And was it, were there any parts that when you were writing, you thought this is I, the, the, the most sort of difficult parts that, that, that were difficult to reconstruct or difficult even from an emotional point of view to go back to? I don't think of any really. Um, yep, you know, all of it was a challenge. And, and again, my technique with writing, again, learned from my father. I, we had a premiere in Hollywood of a restoration of Giant. We did a four-day mm. restoration, which makes it more beautiful than ever, overcoming some of the faults of dissolves that were too technical. But uh, Steven Spielberg had suggested it. And Steven and I introduced the film at Grauman's Chinese um, in, uh, on just last week. And to see that 65-year-old film with, um, <clears throat> with an audience was really <clears throat> thrilling at the same theater where it had premiered 65 years earlier. And now I forget why I brought up Giant, it was to make a point that I... I, I was asking about uh, any moment that was like a challenge or was difficult in, in writing the memoir. Oh, and, and a story that I told with Stephen to the audience that night is that I, I was young and I'd come back from the Air Force and I was in the editing room with my father. And Giant ran, ran, ran three hours and 20 minutes. And it had been longer. And I'd been with him, just seeing him refine it and refine it and improve it. But he kept working at it. And at one time I said, Dad, I said, this is awfully good film. Why don't you just put it out there? And he said, think of the man hours that are going to be spent looking at this film over the years. Don't you think it's more valuable that I spend some of my time now making it a better film? for all those people who are gonna spend that time. And it was just his practice of just making it right. And in a minor chord, uh, that's what I really worked at in this book, just to kind of get rid of the stuff and really to try and refine it to make it as good a book as it could be. It feels like you've learned so much from your father and from, but also from, from so many people through your life. It, it, it feel, yeah. As I was reading it, I was thinking, there, you know, there are lessons here all the way along. I felt like I was learning as well. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah. I was just going to say John F. Kennedy, that I had this, I had just, I think, two meetings with him and several phone calls, but I was working for him. And uh, when I came time to present this idea at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, which was his memorial, um, of honoring the great artists in America, I went to the head of the Kennedy Center with one line. I said, it's carved in the walls of marble on this building, the words of John Kennedy. I look forward to an America that won't be afraid of grace and beauty. I look forward to an America that will honor achievement in the arts, the way we honor achievement in business or statecraft. And there you had a sentence from a president, which was an idea for an enduring 
event and television show. And so you have these influences that uh, are so powerful. And he was a great influence on me, his decisiveness, his sense of purpose. It also makes me long for a time when we had that sort of eloquence in public life. Yeah, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, you know, we'll we'll get there again. We'll get there again. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yes, we're all working toward it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, listen, George, uh, you've been absolutely so generous with your time. There's one there's one final question, actually, I'd like to ask you, if, if at all possible. Yes. The, the the um because this is a writers on film and we always ask for a recommended book and i know i haven't sort of prepared you for this but is there a, a book on cinema that you sort of or even a memoir or a biography that you sort of consider uh, that you would it doesn't have to be the best or anything like that but just that that might be interesting to our listeners well i haven't thought about it uh john but uh, i would put kevin brownlow's the parade's gone by and Kevin Brownlow's David Lean would be uh, two good thoughts. Excellent. What, what brilliant recommendations. And that, that's a brilliant recommendation for me because I, I love David Lean. He's, a, he's a, another magnificent director. Yeah, oh, yes. And, and, and I, I write about David, too. Um, he was uh, such an extraordinary man. And, you know, I have a big television across the way. And even on that screen, instead of the big screen, when Lawrence of Arabia comes on, you know, it's just breathtaking uh, mm. how beautifully rendered uh, and with such imagination and boldness that film is created. And, uh, and it, you know, I have respect for many of the filmmakers working today. I don't want to be uh, totally a, a golden age geek but <laughs> who would you who would you look at today looking at cinema today what sort of gives you uh what filmmakers do you look at and think oh that they're, they're they're carrying on the legacy they're carrying on the stuff oh um guillermo de toro christopher nolan um, jane campion paul thomas anderson i think that's really interesting work uh uh, Barry Jenkins. Gosh, there's so many, and and it's yeah. so international. Um, uh, I I I worry that the resources, uh, you know, the people I've spoken of, uh, David Lean, George Stevens, uh, William Wyler, Fred Zinnemann, they they earned their way to having the most resources for making films today the greater amount of resources are going to Marvel comics and mm. franchise movies with the, the, the studios and the streaming people depend on. Uh, I wish that there were a more balanced allocation. I wish uh, so many of the films made by the, what I would consider the most more thoughtful directors or their more thoughtful films are done almost as B movies. They don't get the big investment, but they get stars to come in uh, for less money. And, you know, I wish they were working with a fairer share of the resources uh, for making movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I, 
thank you so much for for talking to me george i really really appreciate it and um uh yeah that that that's wonderful well john i just so and and i appreciate your uh uh having read the book and 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 talking about it in such interesting ways and uh I live in Washington, D.C. I went to Hollywood for the first time in two years, which I've always just been going back and forth because of COVID. And it was COVID that gave me, uh, forced me <laughs> to sit down and write this, finish this book. Um, but I hope when we're along the line, we will meet. Uh, and uh, I hope you continue this and your other good work. So that was my conversation with George Stevens Jr. And I think you'll agree it was one of the best uh, uh, episodes we've ever had. Um, it's certainly the guest who has had the most first-hand knowledge of the development of Hollywood in the last uh, 60, 70, 80 years. It's, um, when I started this podcast, it was a little over a year ago, and I only intended really to do 10 episodes partly as well to promote uh, writers that I knew whose books had just been released, partly because I just wanted to have conversations with people who had expert knowledge in the field that I love, and I wanted to learn something. It became, it has become something of a film course for me. Um, I've learned a lot. I've read a lot about a lot of characters that, that I would not necessarily have pursued on my own, and I'm absolutely glad I did. It's broadened my horizons in a way that I have found extremely enriching. In, and also in terms of, of course, my, my watching of movies. I've been watching films um, with a much broader perspective than before. And, I, and so this has been intensely valuable for me. Um, what, what I mean by all this is to say that uh, George Stevens Jr. coming on the podcast and uh, talking so beautifully and so interestingly about all these things, it really is a huge... Um, a huge endorsement for for what we've been doing with writers on film and i'm so proud that i that that this has happened and that this conversation exists and is out there uh, along with all the others um there's a real body of work building up and it's all because of you listener because if i was doing this and i didn't see the numbers i would not be continuing <laughs> believe you me so um or maybe I would be. I mean, these conversations, even if I didn't publish them, I'd, I enjoy having them so much that uh, that I'd probably do it anyway. Okay, that's um, that's all from me for today. I'm going to. I'm very sorry. I've got a real. <coughs> I've got a really bad cough at the moment. Not COVID related. I'm glad to say. Oh, another thing I should share with you is when we were doing the podcast, uh, when I was doing the podcast with George, and I was uh, talking to him via Zoom, uh, the Wi-Fi kept cutting out. The internet kept dropping, and I would freeze. And it was all on my side. He he was fine. Um, it literally happened four or five times. Hopefully, you didn't notice during the episode because I edited it together with such finesse. But uh, I, I obviously was apologizing profusely. And George, brilliant guy that he is, said, oh, all my life it's been technical glitches. Don't worry about it. It's, that's, that's, you know, that's the perspective you have to have. You don't think you put up the AFI without a couple of uh, 
technical glitches along the way. Uh, you don't think you direct films and put plays on Broadway without a couple of technical glitches here and there. So that was incredibly encouraging, and it was so nice because, you know, somebody uh, somebody could could quite rightly become impatient at my obvious and evident incompetence, and they, and George didn't, and and you know, oh, good good good. Good stuff. Good look to, to him. Um, by the way, George is also our second guest so far to have met uh, John F. Kennedy. The, the the first one was uh, Joseph McBride, if you remember, uh, a few episodes back. Okay, that's that's enough chatter and blarney from myself. So I will thank Elliot Atkins for his wonderful music. I will thank Ali Howard for his artwork, and I will thank you, listener. Please. Tune in next week for another episode. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.